with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. Today, I'm super excited. We have Dr. George Banks, and he is a professor of management, and he's the department chair at UNC Charlotte. He is the incoming editor-in-chief at the Leadership Quarterly. His research interests focus on leadership and inclusion, ethics, research methods, and statistics. His work has received several recognitions and awards, and in 2022, he was the recipient of the Charlotte Business Journal's 40 Under 40 Award. Now, George, there's a lot more here. (laughs) It was probably the most humble bio I, I have ever received. You know, not only were you department chair, but you decided to go ahead and take on editor of Leadership Quarterly, the premier journal for the topic of leadership in the world. George, thank you so much for being here today. What blanks do you need to fill in? What other color and texture can you add so that listeners know a little bit more about you, sir? First off, Scott, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I am a professor at UNC Charlotte, like you said, uh, originally from Washington, D.C., grew up in the Virginia area, did an undergraduate degree in psychology government, master's degree in industrial organizational psychology, PhD in management from Virginia Commonwealth University. While I was finishing up my PhD, my wife was getting her PhD uh, in microbiology at University of Virginia. Uh, so we're here together in Charlotte. We've got two wonderful little kids. Uh, so I do have a life outside of uh, academics that uh, help helps to keep me balanced, uh, right? Because we all love our jobs, but it's good to it's good to have a life outside of work. Oh, that's great! And you know what? I am discovering that parenting is its own 
wonderful, wonderful practice field for engaging in influence. Yes, <laughs> for yes, practicing, learning about leadership. Even How five-year-olds can be leaders. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing. I mean, I used to watch my daughter jump onto the playground. I have twin girls, and especially one of them would jump onto the playground oh, and just wow. start gathering other children to do what yeah. she wanted to do, right? And Social uh, <laughs> so much fun. Well, and do so they ever do they ever team up against you? Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Collusion. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's so much fun though. It really is. As we transition from kind of the younger years to the the teen years, I've been doing a, I've been trying to do a lot of learning. There's a there's a woman named Lisa Demore who wrote about raising young girls. And so I've been learning about that. And I went to a session at my son's school about teenage boys. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating because more and more, I kind of observe myself failing. And in some cases, it is, it is. And I'm seeing it. Sometimes I don't see it in real time. I look over at my wife and she tells me non-verbally, you're failing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, it's an adventure. It really is. Uh, sometimes I'll say, you know, I, about about 14 years ago, I, I entered a simulation, a 24-7, 365 simulation to test and develop my emotional intelligence. And uh, it's working. It is. But That's I great. keep entering new new phases of challenge. So it's good. It's all good. Every, every chapter has something new for us. It, it doesn't it right? I mean, it's just so interesting this whole process, and you know, I want to jump into how you discovered kind of your passion for what it is that you are writing about. I mean, you are so prolific. You're writing on so many different topics. How did you tap into this passion? When did you first understand that you had a lot of energy for some of these topics? I've always uh, loved research, very intrinsically motivated by that. You know, certainly as an academic, there's a lot of extrinsic factors that can motivate you, but I've always been intrinsically motivated by it, almost a just a research addiction in some ways, right? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people maybe are like that where, you know, you're very good at starting projects. It's a lot harder to, to finish. <laughs> uh, and especially as a PhD student, you know, you are encouraged to try things out. You know, I've, obviously people want you to develop areas of expertise. I've always struggled with that in some ways because I just say yes to everything. I do think I've grown from it because you learn so much from using qualitative methods, quantitative methods, data science, you know, psychometrics, econometrics, learning and dabbling in different content areas. And through all that, it's almost like it's the matrix, right? And and you start to kind of see the zeros and ones, and it makes you a, a better scholar because you're so much better rounded, which is a little bit contrary to the advice we get, which is to kind of pick a research stream or two really quickly, double down on it and, and, and really invest everything you've got in it. And I do think obviously there's merit to that, you know, becoming an expert in an area and becoming recognized for it. But there's also a disadvantage. And I also think there's only two to three really interesting questions at a time in a research stream or in a literature area. And so if you're entirely invested in one literature area, you know, there's only so much you can really produce that's meaningful, I think. Well, you know, as I've engaged in this project of the podcast, I think I've recorded probably around 160 episodes as we've as we're having this conversation. That's great. And 
What's so much fun of, about that is that I might be in a conversation one week with a scholar about transfer of training, and that's what he's been studying for 30 years, right? That's his area of expertise. Yeah. And the next week, I'm in a conversation around adult development. And another sure. week, I'm talking about adult learning theory. And just, it's so broad. And that's what I really, really respect about your landscape of the, of the of of your CV. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just the- My, my CV approach is not to be encouraged to, to, to a lot of people, right? Because you certainly get in trouble for it at times when people see you all over the place and they say, what's your story, right? Yeah. But your story, your story, I mean, what's so interesting about it though, George, is that I mean, when you're writing as many, I, I don't know, has anyone ever written as many meta-analyses as you? <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. Um, on, I, on, di on different topics. I mean, yeah. it's so, but think about that. I mean, from a learning perspective, you're going so deep into some of these areas and really building a breadth of knowledge. And to your point, I think that diversity of knowledge and that that depth and breadth, it's just it's powerful. I really do. Well, and you, you learn a lot by, you know, whether it's a meta analytic review or systematic review or some other type of review, you learn a lot and become an expert very quickly by beginning, by taking kind of a survey of the state of the literature. And then suddenly you have a unique insight into opportunities, gaps, limitations within a literature area that then helps to guide, you know, future primary study research. Yes. Yes. And so it, it, let me also add, it's a reminder too, that your research is meant to be joining a conversation and it kind of helps you to understand what's a meaningful way to advance this conversation. That's so well put. Uh, Kathy Lund Dean, I don't know if you know Kathy, she was the yep. editor of the Journal of Management Education and, and she would describe it as merging into traffic. <laughs> you know? okay, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good metaphor. <laughs> Well, can I can we go on a little bit of a tour of some of your work? I would love for listeners to understand that depth and breadth that just have, have a taste of it. And this isn't going to be in any uh, particular order, but I just think it's just really really a lot of fun. So, so let's go to digital leadership right now. As you explore sure. that topic, what were a couple things that kind of stood out for you on the topic of digital leadership? How is the digital age transforming leadership? Is it that's a great question because in a lot of ways, digital leadership, and it can be defined in a, in, a, in a lot of different ways. There's kind of different conceptualizations, you know, for people, you know, sometimes you're talking about virtual work, you know, where you're working, you know, through Zoom, right, or emails, or you're doing some kind of hybrid format uh, using maybe simulation studies, virtual reality, data science, right, or, or wearable sensors. So there's a, there's a lot of different things that can come to mind when you say digital leadership, but your question is is meaningful, you know, in what way is it, is it kind of similar or different than the way we've always historically under, understood leadership? And, you know, the answer is it's both, right? It, it's it, leadership is still leadership. Social influence is still <laughs> social influence, but in other ways it's different, right? So the way we conceptualize a leader may be different, right? Because you have folks that are in informal roles. They don't have a, a title that says leader, right? You have these, for instance, social media influencers, right? That are yes. having a great impact on people's thinking, their behavior, their thoughts, behaviors they enact, but they're not they're not the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Yes. So there's certainly uh, differences there, but in other ways, you know, it, there's still, you know, a lot of what we've learned about leadership historically still holds true in this digital age. And the digital age, you know, has given us maybe more tools to understand that. 
Okay. Well, so, and, and you're right. I mean, it's so interesting. As I introduce the topic of leadership in class right now, and I talk about influence, my students' minds, they, they go to influencers. That's literally how they kind of think about that word now. Have you observed the absolutely. same thing? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Where, again, it's not necessarily always the CEO, right? Or the governor or president that's creating social influence. There's a, a lot that can be said for folks that are maybe in these kind of historically overlooked positions that are now having impact. I'm going to switch gears from that topic, and we're going to go to some of your reworking, rethinking of transformational leadership behaviors. That's kind of fascinating. So, you know, obviously a lot of this work, I guess it could be moved back to James McGregor Burns, and then of course, Bass and Bass and Avolio, and, and, and it proceeded, and there were different branches of some of this. But I hadn't seen as much, obviously, written about this topic in recent years. So you and some colleagues are going back and looking at these transformational leadership behaviors. What did you find there? Well, Scott, let me first start by asking you a question. So yes. think, of, think of leadership, think of organizational behavior as a field, right? Yep. Take a guess. What percentage of variables in, in this field and in, in these research studies, what percentage do you think are behavioral in nature? Capture behavior. Give me a percentage. Very few. <laughs> uh, that's correct. Seven uh, so we, we, percent. We, that's good. That's close. We did a we did a review and we found it was approximately three percent. Right now, there's wow. certain, there's some uh, moderating variables or contingency factors there. About three percent of all variables, and then our review about nineteen percent of studies had at least one behavioral variable. Now, this, this notion's not new. People have complained for, for many years. Baumeister is one of the ones um, that, that comes to mind first for me, who's noted that we're not studying behavior as much as perhaps we should. Now, there's always benefits, I think, to understanding psychological mechanisms. But you know, if you have a, a field of organizational behavior or a field of leadership, we, we want to know what, what leaders are doing. And you know, a really great example would be, imagine you've got a leader uh, who's a man who displays uh, righteous anger over an, an injustice, right? You might have a woman who displays the same behavior for the same reason, but is perhaps evaluated differently because of societal expectations for how men and women should lead. Now, this is one of the fundamental problems with relying solely upon survey-based research where you know we study these leadership styles, you know, transformational, ethical, authentic, you name it, solely based off questionnaire data. And when you look at meta-analytic reviews on these topics, they're dominated 100% almost exclusively by questionnaire survey measures. Yes. And again, it's it's not that there's an inherent problem with these questionnaires. I, I use them myself. But if you want to study behavior, that's not the best way to do it. That's the best way to study people's evaluations of the behavior. And so this was something that's not unique to transformational leadership, but we took a deep dive into it to say, let's put behavior back into transformational leadership. And let's look at specific behaviors leaders enact that people who are familiar with transformational leadership might look at individualized consideration, right? Yep. So what behaviors do leaders enact that create feelings and evaluations from followers that they've been considered. So we then experimentally manipulate these behaviors. We show that they cause behavioral outcomes and followers. And then the next step is now to teach a machine learning algorithm that can 
recognize these statements, for instance, in emails. They can take transcripts from Zoom meetings and identify the behavior so that we can then provide leaders with more customized coaching and feedback for how well they did enacting transformational leader behaviors and to show the benefits for, for followers in terms of their performance and well-being. I'm going to transition now to another stream of yours. We've got virtual charismatic leadership and then the future of charismatic leadership. But what I would really love to know is how do you think about charismatic leadership differently than these transformational leadership behaviors? Are, what are the differences for you as you think about those two different concepts? That's great. So historically, you know, there have been some concerns, uh, you know, probably dating back at least a decade, if not longer, that there's redundancy between charisma and transformational leadership. And again, not unique to these topics. There's yep. there have been concerns for years that there's a you know as many definitions of leadership as there are folks that have studied it. <laughs> you know, you have things will throw out people will throw out like empowering leadership, humble leadership, servant leadership, and people will say, well, what's the difference, right? Yep. So this is not unique to charisma or transformational. And in fact, when you look, when you start studying specific behaviors, you can see instances where you're like, okay, that, that looks redundant, or maybe there's overlap, but it, it's meaningful, right? Mm. So if you were to uh, think about transformational leadership, one way that you might uh, enact a behavior to develop followers is to teach some kind of uh, life lesson, right? Um, well, how do you do that? You might tell a story, you might share an anecdote, you might use a contrast where you present two different perspectives. That is also uh, has been studied as a charismatic leadership tactic. So it could be potentially both, right? Similarly, you might look at uh, ethical leadership where you're signaling values. You might use a rhetorical question, which is also a charismatic leadership tactic to signal a, a value about a moral. So you, ha you have in these instances, both behaviors that could be classified as charismatic, transformational, ethical. And in fact, this is the way that people experience leaders, right? Because, you know, you, you're not going to get typecast as just a charismatic and I'm typecast as an ethical. And that's it. You know, you don't do anything ethical. <laughs> I don't do anything charismatic, right? That's not the way it works. Yeah. And so this is also a way that data science then comes into play because instead of administering these questionnaires where you've got the maybe MLQ for transformational or the ELS for for ethical, right? And you have these these scales, and the way we'd maybe try to study them simultaneously historical historically is to give a questionnaire with hundred items, and you have all these leadership styles built into it. But now we can teach machine learning algorithms to record, for instance, a Zoom meeting, and to capture the enactment of these different behaviors simultaneously. So we can say, okay. This is kind of almost a, a profile of this leader, and you can see to what extent they're enacting behaviors that are charismatic, ethical, destructive, for instance, because destructive is another one that's potentially subjective, right? So behavior may be developmental at one point and helpful, and it's curvilinear up to a certain point, and then it becomes destructive, right? Yeah. So we need to use these new tools that are available to us to better reflect the way in which people experience leaders. Oh, that's great. So how do you think about virtual charismatic leadership, future of charismatic leadership? What are some things on your mind? I mean, obviously using these tools, right? We've got artificial intelligence, machine learning. We've got uh, some, some new technologies that can be enacted. How else are you thinking about specifically charismatic, either virtually or just the future of? So with, with virtual, one of the big questions we have as leadership is how can we ensure that leaders are as effective virtually as they are in person, right? We saw during the COVID-19 pandemic when all work was shifted online, 
uh, leaders were trying to have positive social influence for for their followers, whether it's their email, videos, you know, virtual meetings, phone calls, you name it. And yep. you know, now post pandemic or as we transition on to whatever the the future holds for us, you know, we're we're hopefully going to have a, a bit more of a balance where there's some in person, some virtual. And one of the things we want to do with charisma is you know say how can we create this positive social influence, whether this be in person or virtually. You know, do these behaviors that leaders enact to kind of uh, inspire and motivate their followers? Do they work equally well virtually? And there's probably some contingencies there, right? Um, yeah. Curvilinear effects where up to a certain point, a behavior might be effective. Maybe then after that, there's diminishing returns. You know, we're continuing to do research on leadership and gender to understand the extent to which uh, certain behaviors work well for men, but maybe not women in terms of leader emergence or leader effectiveness. Mm. Because, and, and we need the answers to these questions because we have a, a gender I- issue in terms of leader, leadership roles. And this is historical. We've kind of plateaued. We need to break off this plateau. Studying behaviors is, I think, the key to that. Studying effective behaviors that work regardless of your demographic uh, background is, is critical to that. And so we need to kind of understand okay, you know, these behaviors experimentally or from a data science perspective appear to work well, regardless of your demographic background or gender, for instance, or we may find that there's bias. We may find that men tend to enact a specific behavior more than than women, or when they enact the same behavior, they're evaluated differently than another demographic group, right? And we need these answers to these questions uh, so that we can improve our, our training and development. Okay. Transitioning, ethical leadership. <laughs> For listeners, I, I want you to. I'm gonna put. Uh, I'm gonna put a link to the to the Google Scholar page of Dr. Banks. I mean, it's 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 really impressive. It's so cool, and the command of these different areas of research, it's it's inspiring. It really is, sir. It really is. But when you think about ethical leadership right now, what are some things that are top of mind or questions still for you in that realm? Similarly, what specific behaviors can we teach leaders? You know, there's been a lot of research, again, on ethical leadership, survey-based, causal inferences are sketchy. We can see that there's a correlation between, if you're my leader, we can see that I evaluate you as ethical, and we can see that that's correlated with my job satisfaction, right? Uh, Now, causal inferences, again, a bit challenging there. But what we really want to know is what behaviors is Scott enacting that caused me to evaluate him as ethical and that we can demonstrate to stakeholders actually produce beneficial outcomes, right? So we had a conceptual paper on this. Uh, we've completed a qualitative study where we created a taxonomy of specific ethical leader behaviors. We showed that these behaviors cause someone to evaluate you as ethical. We showed that they cause an increase in task performance. So we did a study where we hired participants to write thank you letters to frontline workers who worked during the pandemic, right? When it was, you know, things were locked down, but some people still had to get up and go to work so that the world could keep, you know, functioning. The participants wrote thank you letters to that. We showed that the uh, ethical leadership speeches caused uh, increases in, in task performance there. We also conducted a study that involved financial theft. We gave people a chance to steal money from us. We showed that the ethical leadership <laughs> speeches, this is pretty fun, right? This is a, this is kind of humorous to see uh, that you're allowing people to steal money. Uh, but we showed that the ethical uh, leadership speeches caused the reduction in financial theft. And then, um, so you kind of have the proof of concept there, but we also want to make it easy for other people to study ethical leadership behaviors. So we created a machine learning algorithm that could automatically score 
these ethical signals in text so that future scholars could use this to study emails, CEO letters to shareholders, meeting transcripts, et cetera, so that you have that causal evidence. You have specific behaviors that you can teach your MBA students, for instance, but then you also have an easier tool to use to study ethical leadership. Hmm. So a theme I'm hearing in, in really a lot of your answers are, you know, behaviors. Are we truly studying behaviors? And then are we leveraging technology to help us do some of this research in new and unique ways? Would that be capturing some of this? Yes. And I, I will add that I have a real interest in research that promotes inclusion, especially from a, a leadership perspective. Mm. And I think one of the reasons why we haven't made more gains in this area is because we're not studying behaviors, right? So again, if you're a good leader, we don't know, looking at the literature, very specifically what behaviors you enacted that caused that. So again, imagine we're in a Zoom meeting and I get cut off. You might say, hey, George, I, I noticed you didn't get a chance to finish your thought. I'd love for you to tell me a bit more about your ideas, right? And see how that creates a feeling of inclusion in what might be an in-person meeting or, or a virtual meeting. And so we want to be able to pinpoint these behaviors that leaders can do very specifically so that we can teach it to leaders, which can, can help them emerge, but can also help them to be effective as leaders once they get there into, the, into those leadership roles. I love it. Well, last one I'd love to touch on is just, and we've never talked about this topic on, on the podcast but what are we learning about the dark triad? And maybe define that for, for listeners, but then what are some observations in that space? Fascinating topic. Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up. So this is um, a topic that, that's been around for a while, right? So we have our, our big five personality traits, you know, which are, I think, well-known. You have conscientiousness, emotional stability, openness to experience, agreeableness, and extroversion. But there's this notion that these are very positively valenced, personality traits, stable individual differences. And there's always with personality research, you're, you're debating it, are we missing something that's meaningful? So the dark triad looks at narcissism, uh, looks at Machiavellianism, which is uh, essentially looking at manipulative behavior. And then you have psychopathy. So you have a lack of uh, kind of feelings or uh, emotions, almost stoical to, to a fault. There's been uh, a, a lot of... Uh, primary study research on this. We've done several meta-analytic reviews on it. It's to the point that now we're working on basically a second-order meta. So it's like a meta of metas. We're introducing some new contingency factors. So, you know, using best practices in open science, right, to see, you know, to do traditional results hold up and, and trying to understand the full extent of these of these personality traits. And one of the things that's interesting about the dark triad is people have long talked about, you know, are there points in time that these are good, right? Yeah. Because uh, you naturally, you see these and you're like, well, I don't score high on these, right? And, you know, they're continuums. So we all score somewhere on narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. You know, hopefully we score on the lower end of it, but we, we score on it. But there is an interesting kind of idea. And so this kind of relates to back to leadership and destructive leadership. You know, when do people enact some of these more inappropriate behaviors? Are there times that as a leader that you are tempted for whatever reason to be manipulative or be separated from your emotions in some ways. And, and the ways in which people have talked about this being good, you know, imagine being a manipulative CEO, you might negotiate for a better deal for your firm. So you're benefiting your in-group at the expense of an out-group or psychopathy. Maybe you've got to, to lay somebody off 
And it's a tough job. Someone's got to do it. And you're disconnected from your emotions. That makes you you better at it. Or narcissism. Uh, perhaps you're in, again, a tough job where you get a lot of criticism, which a lot of leaders are critiqued quite a bit. And so being a little bit self-focused to a fault might kind of buffer you uh, emotionally from some of these critiques. Now, the counter argument to all this is that over the course of time, you know, in terms of social exchange relationships, these things are bad, you know, to score high on it, right? If you're manipulating people consistently, people are going to not want to work with you, do business with you, uh, have relationships with you. Same thing for psychopathy, same thing for narcissism, that over time, these, these on average are bad traits to score high on. But it is interesting to understand what some of these implications are for how we select leaders, how we develop leaders. This relates to a really cool uh, paper on hubris that was published in Leadership Quarterly, I think it was last year, You know where they looked at how appointed leaders have some kind of arrogance associated with it because they're like uh, entitled almost. I, I, I earned this, I deserve it, now I'm, I'm in charge and I'm the boss, right? Yep. As opposed to other techniques to leadership selection where you might uh, have a pool of qualified individuals that are then one is randomly selected and how this might reduce this kind of hubris or entitlement effect because you know you recognize that you're competent you know you've worked hard but there's less entitlement because of the way the selection was made hmm. well you mentioned LQ so let's go there you've just uh, in in recent months taken over as editor in chief or have you actually officially taken over now George I take over uh, July or January one, but we've okay. begun the transition phase in terms of putting together the team, working on editorial policy, you know, kind of the behind the scenes in terms of operating the system. So that, you know, it's anytime you have a transition like that, you want things to be smooth and, and not rushed. So I, I've, we've begun. Oh, that's great. That's great. So would you talk a little bit about some of your vision for the journal? What's exciting for you as you think about this opportunity? Sure. So uh, when Antonikis came in about six years ago, he did a lot of heavy lifting in terms of creating the foundation that we have today, uh, in terms of putting emphasis on strong causal inferences, helping to improve the methodological rigor of the journal, uh, but also the field. And then also starting the process of enacting open science practices, which is really important, not just for having a robust science uh, that replicates and can be reproduced, but also has benefits for collaboration, exchanging of resources and materials. Hmm. Uh, he also did a great job starting to grow the, the field in terms of recognizing that, hey, it's not just management and applied psychology that can contribute to this, but there's benefits to biology, sociology, economics, uh, political science, education, you know, all these fields are encouraged and welcome to, to study leadership. And so, mm. you know, all of those things, I, I certainly want to continue the, the emphasis on methodological rigor, causal inferences. I want to increase the, the global presence of LQ. Uh. It kind of doesn't sit well with me that the majority of leadership to date is conducted in the United States and Western Europe, right? Mm. Certainly there are leaders in South America, Africa, Asia, you know, other parts of the world. And we, we need to study that. So I, I want to see, you know, like I said, continue to grow some of these things like the the, dis the disciplinary diversity, right, uh, I think is important, but the inter international presence is important as well. I really want to push the open science element as well to encourage greater sharing of data, analytic code, resources uh, for various stakeholders. I think that this is, is really important. Publishing models, you know, we introduced the registered report model. There are other kind of futuristic, it feels like, approaches that we've seen other fields use that, you know, I'd love to 
I mean, this is uh, this this would take a lot of work, but I'll just give it to you because it's a fun. Yeah, example, right? I feel like we're gonna geek out here. This is fun. I love it. What, what what do you see? So, <laughs> imagine you have a great research idea, right? Okay, it, it's yep. a good one, right? You you write up an introduction section, right, outlining the 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 idea, the contribution to theory or practice. You outline the methodology section, right? That's what you do, and you submit it to LQ. We then have it reviewed as a registered report. If it's a good idea, or let me say first, if it's a bad idea, you get a rejection, right? Yeah. You know, there's a methodological flaw that can't be fixed, or there's not merit to the research question for whatever reason. You, Scott, are benefited by the fact that you did not conduct that study yet, right? <laughs> Which had this fundamental flaw. You got some initial feedback. Uh, you know, you can go back to the drawing board, rework it, right? Workshop it a bit you know, that kind of thing. Reviewers, it's not too taxing, right? Because you're just reviewing the intro and method section. But now let's let's do the reverse. Let's imagine you had a good idea, right? Yep. We like it. We're going to give you, after a revision, perhaps an in-principle acceptance, which means that you're going to get to publish this study regardless of the outcome, whether it's statistically significant or not, for instance. You're going to get to publish this. And this is very meaningful. So for instance, I study leadership and, and gender effects. So imagine you find a gender effect, right? That's yep. meaningful. Imagine that you find no gender effect. That's also meaningful. You know, we yep. need all that information. But now this is my my favorite part. Imagine that we've partnered with a funding agency, right? I'll just use it throughout some of the big examples, National Science Foundation, Department of Defense. Imagine we've partnered with them. You not only get the in-principle acceptance for your submission, which means you're going to get an article, but now you're also going to get, we'll say a $500,000 grant to go out and execute the work, right? Wow. It's a win, 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 because you now have gotten a publication and a grant for a good idea. You know, you have the, you do have to work hard now to deliver. The journal gets to commission some really great research, right? Yeah. It's more fun to review an idea where you can kind of help the author co-create or craft their idea. And then the funding agency, it's a win, because you want to fund high quality research that's going to get published in a good journal with good visibility, have implications for theory and practice. And you've got the best reviewers in the world and a great associate editor to help the authors to, to guide and navigate on this journey. So it's it's truly the future where you see the benefits of coming together uh, and these ideas. And let me go a little bit further, Scott. Yeah. Now imagine your idea. I don't know, to, George, how is this going to get any better? <laughs> imagine if your idea is to do a large scale collaborative project, right? So it's yeah. not just going to be Scott sitting around at his desk doing a research study. Imagine Scott's going to invite a network of leadership scholars, and we're going to do research with 10, 20 people, something we couldn't do on our own, right? To really make a a meaningful, large-scale advancement for the literature. Now, I jokingly say that this is, you know, the future, but we we have already begun this. So you, you mentioned virtual charismatic leadership. That was funded in part through a grant from Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology. It was an international collaboration. Uh, we have a grant now from the Army Research Institute for a prospective meta-analysis. So not a retrospective where everyone kind of worked on their own and you're trying to find these articles and hope that you can analyze them together, but a prospective meta. So we had a workshop in September where a bunch of leadership scholars from around the U.S. came 
And we developed a, an idea for a, a project. This was supported by, again, the Army. And we're going to create this, uh, this, create this project proposal, submit it as a registered report where we get feedback, right? So it's not quite the process I just described where you get the in-principle acceptance and then the grant. This time it, it happened a bit in reverse. But you can see the benefits to the authors, the journal, the funding agency, and the field as you start to produce this collaborative research. Yeah. Oh, that's just incredible. It's it's elegant and it's beautiful. It's meaningful. I mean, there's so many wins baked into, I mean, you're, you're not wasting the time of reviewers. You're not wasting, I mean, there's just, are there like 12 wins in that? <laughs> and and it, it accelerates science, right? Because yes. when you do a typical meta-analysis, you've got to wait 10, 15, 20 <laughs> years for enough research to emerge that you can meta-analyze that that data set. Now here, so in, in the charisma I'll use as, as an example again, we did the traditional retrospective meta-analysis that was published in, in 2017. And of course, like most meta-analysts, we came up with a list of things we wish the primary study authors had done and hope that people will listen to us in the future so that 10 or 20 years from now, there's enough data to analyze, to answer these questions. And we said, you know what? Let's just let's just go ahead and do it ourselves now, right? Why wait? Yeah. And so that's when we did the the prospective meta analysis. And so you know we we're doing some others on authorship right now, and then folks in other fields have been doing this for a while. So this again is not it's not it's not unique to have large scales of researchers come together and and work together on something. Well, George, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. We should probably start to wind down. Just a couple of things. So, and, and and some of these I'm I'm repeating. I very much appreciate, obviously, your command of the, the the methods and the statistics and the technology, but then I just have such great appreciation for your willingness to, to your point, in some ways, buck the trend a little bit and approach this work differently because I think we need that. I think we know where this the the norms. Of the of behavior when it comes to how a scholar exists in higher education, we know where that where that gets us, and here we are. And you are thinking from a, a creative and innovative standpoint about how we do some of this better, how we accelerate some of this work, how we do better work. And I just have a great appreciation. I, I just have a lot of respect. I really, really do. Well, thank you, Scott. But let me also add that. You know, the work that I do is, has been so inspired by so many different scholars, and it's really a nice time to be a leadership scholar right now because there's just such community. Um, there's just so much support, exchanging of ideas. You know, it feels like a really collegial, fun, safe space to do this research. So, you know, I've learned so much from from folks before me and, and folks that I work with, you know, even PhD students, right? You learn from from those collaborations. Sure. Well, as we as we close out for the day, what have you been streaming? What have you been watching? What have you been listening to? What have you been reading? What's caught your eye in recent times? You know, it might have something to do with what we just discussed. It may have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But what's caught your attention that listeners might be interested in? That's a good question. You know, and I, you know, as you're you're phrasing it to me, you know, I, I'm trying to think about some of the stuff that I'm currently listening to versus some things that I've uh, listened to or read recently. And I'm going to go with with one that's relatively recent. So this was just published in uh, 2019. It's a book. I, I'm a big Audible fan. I don't I don't work for Audible. I'm not, uh, not advertising for them. But, um, uh, you know, it's a nice way to squeeze in some reading that's not journal articles, right? So there's there's one it's I, I, let me read the full full title to you because I, I think there's some other sort or 
material at the rate it, uh, related to it. It's uh, it's invisible women, data biased in a world designed for men, and it's uh, the author is um, Caroline Corredo uh, Perez. Perez is the the last name there, and this this book just blew my mind because you know mm. you, you hear about gender bias and, and gender discrimination, uh, you know, in different areas, but they start. Uh, the, the author breaks and she, if you get the aud- audible book, she narrates it herself, which is, which is even better. Right. Yes. Yes. But you start realizing. And, and what, a, one thing I, I love about this as a scientist, it's very evidence-based, right? So she doesn't just say there's bias or discrimination here or there. She's citing really specific examples and it blows your mind and it covers everything from the way in which snow, like when it snows, the way in which people determine city planners design decide where to plow first right and if you think about things like minimizing injuries and accidents and where people need to go so it covers everything from that to the the organizational science space and the way in which jobs are designed uh to to set people up for success and it I, i like it because she also covers a lot of kind of practical takeaways for folks that you're like, wow, I could enact that today at, at my job. And it's one thing I also love to highlight, right? It talks about bias against bias that, that create challenges for women in the workplace, but there's a lot of implications for men too, which a lot of times you talk about gender equality in the workplace, you know, there tends to be a focus on, well, what can women do or what do we need to do to help women? But really it, it's a, it's not a us versus them kind of story. It's how can we all work together to make the workplace better? And so a lot of her recommendations aren't just helpful for women. They're helpful for men to make their lives better as well, like together. And so that's nice. one of the, the, the positive messages I love from the book. Mm. Interesting. I will put that in the show notes for sure. And and I too, I love it when it's the author who's reading. I just listened to Lisa Feldman Barrett, the Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And oh my gosh, right? I mean, I, I love hearing the author share their work. Or I listened to, have you ever listened to Ray Dalio, George? Gosh, that name sounds so familiar. Oh, okay. So you want a book that's going to kind of, it's a, it's a little bit like Harari, with 21 okay. lessons for the 21st century, just yeah. this kind of, you know, 50,000 foot, but Dalio has a book called uh, principles for dealing with the changing world order. Okay. And it is just a fascinating listen. If you get an opportunity, he is, he's going to a number of bodies of literature. He's, he founded a, a firm called Bridgewater and He's a historian and he loves economics and he loves investing. And he's very interested in, you know, what is it that caused the Dutch to rise and then fall and the British to rise oh, okay. and then fall and then the yeah. US and where are we yeah. in comparison yeah. to China? And but he's looking at it. He have these, he has these 18 principles that he kind of looks at to indicate success or 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 concern. And it's just a really interesting, it's a but I love listening to him. He actually switches you know, readers. And I'm like, Ray, okay. come back. Yeah. <laughs> I liked you. As this yeah. person. <laughs> uh, well, George, I'm so thankful for your time today. And again, thank you for the work that you're doing. 
it's oftentimes a thankless service serving in these roles because it's a heavy lift and it's a lot of work. But uh, I hope uh, listeners believe at this point that we are in very, very good hands and there's a bright future. I loved hearing your optimism about where we are and that it's a fun time to be a scholar and it's a fun time to be doing this work with some of the individuals in the field. It's exciting. It really is. And I think so much of what you discussed will help catapult our work forward much more quickly than maybe it has in the past. So thank well, you. Sir. Thank you, Scott, for for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on, on the podcast. Uh, I'd love to have you back. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. I don't know that there's too much more to say. I think there's a lot of innovation and creativity happening right now in leadership studies, a lot of fun opportunity with people like George at the helm of Leadership Quarterly, challenging us to do science differently, to accelerate the work, to explore uh, the behaviors. I think it's just wonderful. I really do. And I left that conversation just super excited about the potential and the opportunities even thinking about some things that I would love to do, it sparked a lot of neurons in the brain. <laughs> so thank you so much, George. Thank you for the work that you're going to do, that you have done to help us better understand this thing called leadership. If you haven't listened to the previous episode about the Followership Conference, please do and consider submitting to the Followership Conference a proposal and consider attending. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to explore that topic as an area of inquiry as well. Take care, everybody. Thanks again to Dr. George Banks. We are in good hands. Accelerating science. So exciting. Wonderful stuff. Take care, everyone. Be well. And as always, thanks for checking in. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.